welcome to Architecture Talk Tang. I am Sara Colada, an architect and organizer of the Disrupt Symposium, the first of its kind business of architecture event, bringing to stage major architecture practices to cover topics related to entrepreneurship and practice operations within the AEC industry. I am an architecture business development consultant and my goal is to raise the financial well-being of architects through effortless business growth. Each podcast episode features an expert or thought leader from the AEC industry who shares their journey, challenges and advice. Now, let's dive into this episode and welcome our guest for an exclusive interview. So welcome everybody to yet another conversation of Architecture Talk Tank with Sarah Palazza. I have Jose Ruiz Cruz from Integrated Projects with me today, yet again, for wonderful conversation about strategic planning. The other day when we, when we met and we had a conversation with Jose, um, he's been telling me a lot about how he's positioned his company and I found it really interesting. I really wanted him to share some of his experiences. So I asked him to come back on a conversation with me and so that we can cover just in this conversation here uh, only the subject of strategic positioning. Uh, but going back to the basics, um, I will let you introduce yourself, Jose, and tell a little bit about what you do, just in case the listeners haven't seen the first part of our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jose Cruz, I'm the founder and managing director of Integrated Projects. Uh, we're a building intelligence company uh, based out of New York and doing work all over, partnering with organizations, uh, private and public, uh, to digitally transform their real estate portfolios. So that's, Excellent. That's Thank you and welcome back. Um, so yeah, it's been very, very interesting for me to, to have this conversation with you offline the other day about um, ways in which you basically positioned your company and I wanted to pick your brains about this and find out a little bit more. Um, so can you tell me maybe, let's just start from the basic, what is strategic positioning and why is it important in the first place? Yeah, super important. Um, so the way that uh, I define strategic positioning uh, is probably helpful to understand how I would see uh, strategy itself. Uh, and strategy is very much about uh, trade-offs, uh, sometimes understanding more what you don't do than what you do. Um, and what I've noticed is that once myself, my team, uh, the, the company, once we're very clear on uh, what we don't do, then we can actually start asking ourselves uh, what we have the opportunity to be the best in the world at something, and uh, but it starts there. Uh, a lot of a lot of my thoughts uh, stem from um, an essay, quite literally titled "What Is Strategy," uh, by Michael Porter. It's a, it's an essay that uh, makes the rounds in your you know business schools, uh, but it's an extremely uh, important uh, reading for anyone in business because it. Uh, again, forces you to make the distinction between strategy 
and say what is often confused with strategy in terms of operational um, excellence or operational effectiveness. And uh, these two things often get um, uh, confused, uh, but they're very different, right? And so uh, I'd start there. But um, in big picture, for me, strategy is uh, equivalent to the trade-offs that as a company, uh, we decide to take uh, in order to then pursue um, a strategic advantage, right, in, in business. So. When you don't really understand the distinction, it's almost like people can be very tactical uh, with the way that they do business. So what, what I mean by that is not really thinking about the long-term plan, but just acting you know, at the heat of things. So for example, looking at what other people are doing in your industry and thinking that that's what you should be doing. And so when you switch really quickly between objectives, you kind of lose the long-term plan. So can you elaborate a little bit more of the, on like how strategy gets implemented perhaps and you know, what is the principle of strategy in the first place? Yeah, 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 that's an, that's an important thing. Um, so in my case, I'm obviously coming at it from the perspective of where um, integrated projects is and how we see uh, strategic positioning. But I'm convinced that this applies really to anyone in business. Uh, but uh, before getting into specifically what we do, uh, I think one of the case studies that have impacted me, uh, and again, is within um, uh, the case study of what is strategy is uh, the case study of um, Southwest Airlines uh, and how their origin story and how they came to be. Um, and to try to make it relevant to your listeners and to folks within design, engineering, and construction, uh, this is a really important case study because um, take, for example, this case study. Uh, Southwest Airlines, when it started, it was in the 1970s. It was a young company. And it, and it tried to compete in a much larger existing uh, competitive landscape, a very established, large kind of corporate airlines where the reality is it was very difficult to distinguish yourself from other large companies at the time, right? Because frankly, uh, in addition to just having historically low margins as a business for airlines, it was just hard to compete and to differentiate yourself from, you know, at the time, of course, uh, Continental versus United versus all of these other airlines. Because ultimately, if you could just put people on a plane, um, keep them alive and make them sure that they went from point A to point B, that was it, right? And it didn't really matter what the logo on the plane was. Um, so it was very difficult to distinguish themselves. So, um, even just competing in that marketplace was really difficult. So uh, fast forward, Southwest, I think, had a really interesting way of understanding strategy, at least in order to break into like what is just a very competitive pond, right, where other players are. Um, and what I'm fascinated by was they were very clear on what they didn't do, right? So what they didn't do is they didn't serve the existing population that could afford to travel on airplanes, right? So they actually went out and identified not the people that could afford to travel in the 1970s, which in those times were a little bit more business class, um, you know, kind of the, the, the more well-to-do population. What Southwest actually identified was who are the folks, who are the people uh, riding buses, right? Or who are the people that would otherwise have to drive um, to get to their destination? Um, and how can we address their demand? Because it's just as much 
it's not that people that can't afford Continental don't travel. It's just that they can't afford to travel, um, but they still need to. Um, so being very clear with, okay, well, we're not addressing that market. We're addressing this market. That was the start of a series of trade-offs, right? From there, economically, they had to create an entire ecosystem of uh, activities that made sense. So in other words, rather than spending a lot of money on creating planes that had first class or that had stewards or that had uh, baggage checking or that had automated, um, or I should say like, you know, highly specified personnel to check your bag, um, rather than, you know, offering very flexible flights from New York to LA, they actually had to do away with all of that and accept it as a trade-off and say, look, we're not actually going to do any of that. We're going to not offer first class. We're actually not going to allow you to check your bag. Um, we're going to automate the ticketing system. So no, we're not paying staff there. We're actually going to only fly to second tier cities, right? So rather than New York to Los Angeles, we're going to fly from a smaller tier city and all of these trade-offs, right? Being very clear with all of these, actually allowed them to provide an amazing service at the time that captured an entire demand that just wasn't even serviced in the first place. Um, right. And so they were able to achieve that and they were able to appeal to a very specific market that just wasn't being spoken to or even serviced. What is more interesting though, is then when people caught on to that, uh, or not people, but organizations, competitors caught on to that and they tried to emulate, uh, Southwest. Um, and here's where it get, gets interesting because um, at the time, of course, the, uh, the, the Continental Airlines was one of the larger airlines at the time. And in response to the success that Southwest had, uh, they tried to compete uh, by creating an entirely new line called Continental Light. And this Continental Light was essentially a direct com competition with Southwest to offer, you know, lower priced, fair, um, more affordable travel. They failed miserably. And I think it's important to understand why they failed and why Southwest succeeded. And it was because um, at the time, Continental Light didn't accept the, the concept of trade-offs. In other words, they were straddling two different strategic positions where uh, Continental still had the very large, expensive jumbo jets. They still had to maintain the overhead and staff of, you know, a full service airline, first class, everyone got meals, etc. And they tried to do this low fare thing. There was no trade-offs. They, they essentially tried to do it all. Um, and then, of course, failed miserably. Um, and so to, to relate this back to design, engineering, construction, service-based industries, um, we were not any different. We have to um, have the same understanding of trade-offs uh, to be able to compete sustainably, right, as a, as a company. Um, in our case, right, we have to be very clear with who we service, um, who we're we're going to provide an exceptional level of service and who are just not going to be able to do it. And that's okay. Right. There's, there's, there's room in the market to service various folks. Uh, but we have to be very clear with what we don't do, uh, right. To allow us to then provide an amazing service for the, the people that, um, we, we will. 
Um, I'll stop there, but um, that's kind of at the heart of how I understand strategy. Um, you know, and then it does lead to a series of other uh, decisions from an operations perspective as to what you decide to focus on. Yeah, indeed. You know, it reminds me of uh, something we say in Poland that if you're trying to be good with everything, you're good for nothing. And I think that in business, it's really important to have like a clear message and to know, like to define very clearly why you're doing something and who you're serving and to really align your, your service and the price as well as, as well as the message towards the specific customer. So um, I know that when you have referred to certain um, strategies that need to be put in place and thought of in order to really uh, strategically position your business, you're talking about answering those questions, but can you elaborate a little bit more on it? And also I'm curious about, um, you know, what really drove you to, to take those steps and decide those particular steps for integrated projects? Yeah, yeah. So some of the specific steps we had to take was uh, taking uh, um, a pause and asking ourselves where the design industry is, uh, where demand is, where clients are, um, and just the general needs. And often uh, a lot of those answers uh, came outside of the immediate uh, sphere of the design industry, right? You have to look at other industries to learn what's happening and take notes, right? Um, so that's, that's where it starts. Um, I think in terms of uh, specific steps that we've had to take, we've had to implement a series of, of steps. And this is something I, I, I've spoken about before where um, I'm convinced that regardless if you're a large company or a small company, uh, uh, the series of activities, right, that a, that a company decides to perform is, is, is their strategy, right? And so uh, I would start there with what are the exact activities that you're um, choosing to work on uh, and what are you choosing to not work on? That, that's, that's the start. You have to get that really right, right? Because that is much harder to emulate. Um, now, uh, going back to strategy versus operational effectiveness, um, operational effectiveness or what's called, you know, sometimes referred to as operational excellence is um, being very clear with what you do and then getting really uh, a lot better at that, right? And that is a function of just trying to consistently improve, um, consistently remain lean and get better, quicker, cheaper, um, that's that's everyone every company needs to to do that right however that's not strategy um that is operational effectiveness and the, the the distinction is really important because you can get better quicker cheaper understanding that that's um with that alone it's always going to be a race to the bottom and throughout history there's many examples of uh us essentially competing um different companies competing and it's going to be consistently a race to the bottom of who's better, quicker, cheaper, and then ultimately driving down profits and um, whatnot, right? So what you want to also do in addition to operational excellence of always, of course, improving your own operations is making sure that you are creating an entirely new um, playground, I guess, for your company, right? Where you're not necessarily um, with 
you know, competing in what's called like a red ocean. Uh, the term red ocean is just simply um, a term reference in like companies that uh, there's just a lot of competition and quite literally there's a lot of blood in the water and quite literally it's just a race to the bottom, right? As opposed to a blue ocean, right? Where um, there's not many competitors, you're, it's less defined, um, but by definition, it's, it's, there's less competition and thus much more room to grow. Uh, so you always want to try to position your company as much as possible within a blue ocean instead of a red ocean, um, first and foremost. And so um, that's obviously what we're trying to do, as, as I'm sure every design firm needs to do. Um, there is this kind of um, cliche where architects tend to be like the, the kind of the jack of all trades and we just do everything. Um, you know, my experience in, in, in academia has always been how can you uh, become a very good conceptual thinker to solve any kind of problem? which is an amazing skill to have. But in business, you need to be super, super focused, right? You need to like address a thing and do it really well. Um, and so I think that it's important to balance the two. Um, in our case, we are servicing um, the commercial sector. We, are, we started our early kind of gateway uh, into some of the early work was specifically within office spaces and then specifically within the market of the flexible office space which until very recently was a very high growth um, market. Uh, and what I mean by like flexible office space, I mean the kind of the new trend of co-working, uh, flexible office space providers, um, the kind of the high growth uh, providers. We chose that market because at the time it was the fastest move, moving vehicle for us to be able to prove out our thesis of being able to digitize space um, very quickly. And then once you digitize space, uh, all of the value add services that come after that, um, you know, is, is, is what we were working on. Um, I think there's decisions on what you choose to work on. I think uh, things like pricing models, and I think we briefly talked about this before, um, is something to keep in mind. Um, and again, just one more lever, right, of many levers that I think a company has to, to be very clear on. And each lever has to kind of complement the next, right? Because you can imagine that, uh, while any company may be able to copy one or two levers, right, or two combinations of things, it's very, very difficult for any company, small or large, to be able to, to, uh, to copy every single combination of levers, right? And so that that's, goes back to, again, the activities that a company decides to do uh, or not to do. Um, yeah, and maybe in, an, in another... Uh, Another video I'll talk about is specifically, I think some of the more granular things that we decide to do with how we're um, implementing you know, 3D scanning technology with uh, BIM, with uh, data science, with you know, front end and back end platforms, et cetera. Um, but yeah, every, every company has to kind of have their own uh, series of activities to, to be able to provide the best value for, for, uh, for their clients. So. Architecture Talk Tank is sponsored by the good people at Integrated Projects. A team of architects and technologists focus on the digitalization of the built environment. Did you know that there are more existing buildings in this world than websites? Yet only 0.0001% have been digitized. In response to this, the Integrated Projects team launched BIMIT to digitize any space imaginable. Offices, 
homes, mechanical spaces, you name it. Now any architect, engineers or reality capture specialists can convert their 3D scan into LOD 200 BIM just in hours, not weeks or months. Why does this matter? Well, now we can accurately view, verify and quantify the spaces that we design, build and operate. To learn more about BIMIT, visit www.integrated-projects.com forward slash Sarah Colada. Very much so those activities are a little bit of a combination of what your skill set is and your interest with the concept of blue ocean, which very much re refers in reality to the needs of the customer as well. Um, so there's this thin line behind how you make a decision, um, you know, really trying to position your product in front of a, a niche and a customer that will find value in it and with a narrow message, right? So uh, I think that's for a lot of people that perhaps don't have much of a big business background or for that, you know, for, for the means of specifically the example of Red Ocean and Blue Ocean marketing background. Um, how would you define really for, let's just say an architecture firm, what a Blue Ocean would be like? Let's just say, um, you know, what specifically would you need to think about to move from a red ocean idea to a blue ocean idea? Yeah, yeah, this is tough. And if it was an easy answer, believe me, there would be many more people uh, shifting over to a blue ocean. Um, so I don't pretend that, I, you know, this is obviously my perspective, tons of other ideas. Um, I think to be able to kind of describe how I think about it, again, I would have to use a, a, a parallel um, or a metaphor. Um, one of, I think, the more successful cases of a blue ocean way of executing uh, is historically, uh, I think Henry Ford was a great example of a blue ocean uh, that he created, right, with the Model T car. Um, and the market that he created, an entirely new market that he created, right, um, by doing so. And so, uh, you know, when, when Henry Ford started the Model T car, uh, we were in a very different place with uh, transportation technology. Um, cars existed before the Model T, but they were very expensive and they were very custom. And only, in this case, the elite could afford them, right? Uh, in fact... Um, at the time, the, the U.S. president said that nothing signifies the, uh, the level of arrogance and wealth uh, than essentially the car, the automobile, right? So there was a sentiment, you know, back in the, I think, 1900s and 1910s that this particular thing, uh, cars were understood very differently then than they are now. And so uh, what I thought was interesting was Henry Ford at the time uh, didn't necessarily look to compete with the very expensive custom tailor-made cars, um, but rather chose to actually look at a completely different thing, right? And again, going back to your, uh, to your question about how do you begin looking at a blue ocean, you usually have to begin by not looking at the competition. Uh, you usually have to begin with where where is the world? Uh, and the reality is at the time, most of the world was actually not on a car, but it was actually on horse and buggy. 
right? And so I think in his creation of trying to create a blue ocean for, for, for Ford, uh, he looked at the horse and buggy. So first and foremost, I think it's, it's really important to understand uh, what, what benchmarks are you looking at? I, and it's usually not a good idea to look at your competition or what you assume to be your drug competition. It's usually, the answer is usually somewhere else. And so in his case, it was a horse and buggy, and it was drastically different because it was much more common. Many more people could, have, could attain it. Um, the price point was obviously very, very different, um, but it had you know, certain pros and cons uh, about it, right? A horse and buggy was not able to kind of adjust for the bumpy roads of the time, right? Most of the roads at that time were dirt. Um, it was certainly less expensive, and, the, and I guess the... the the con of the very expensive tailored vehicles at the time were that in order to service it, and if something messed up, it was very, very expensive. So like when you put all these things together, um, what he was able to do was actually reverse engineer a product that was not looking at the expensive vehicles. In fact, he didn't even use that as a benchmark. He used actually the price point of a horse and buggy and worked backwards of how can I create a car um, that doesn't compete with the tailor made, but actually with the horse and buggy. So sure enough, he actually worked from there and worked his way backwards. Um, and sure enough, you know, most people know the story of uh, Henry Ford and the Model T and, and the assembly line and things like that. But um, it's, it's an example of how you even begin to ask the question of maybe it just starts with asking a different question or looking at a different set of factors. And I think for designers, engineers, um, we've probably been so accustomed to looking within our own um, realm and what people are doing within our own sector that we forget that there's entirely other industries that we can learn from. Um, in, in, our, in my case, I'm convinced that we need to be learning a lot more from just the you know, SaaS technology sector. Um, we have a lot to learn there um, in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I'll stop there. But I think that's, that's um, how you can even begin to identify an opportunity, a blue ocean uh, opportunity for your own individual. This episode of Architecture Talk Tank is brought to you by the MGS Global Group, a team that provides on-demand CAD and BIM drafting, as well as renderings for architecture firms. In today's environment, with everyone experiencing a surge in projects and staffing challenges, MGS Global can deliver your drawings on time and within your budget. So why work with MGS Global? Their customer service is exceptional and they provide quality for value. They have completed over 5,000 projects worldwide, a testament to their work. Now you can focus on design and let MGS do the rest. Check them out at www.mgsglobalgroup.com. Sure, it's a really interesting insight. And one of the things that I'm kind of hearing is that one of the important aspects is obviously to not look at the competition, but look at opportunities. And I think that those opportunities a lot of times present themselves as a problem. So in the example that you've spoken of, there was definitely a problem that Ford has fixed and when you really fix a problem for someone then the value of what you're providing grows and uh, and with that also 
the customer base. So I think it's really important to see it that way also. And just as a side note, because I heard uh, you speak about how you decided to kind of narrow down your services to flexible office buildings and things like that. Um, recently, I started working with a team of like trend researchers and uh, there's been quite an interesting piece of information that we came across that um, you know could be quite an interesting thing also to kind of maybe discuss here related to what you do, but also the concept of like blue ocean and how you can navigate through information to kind of narrow down your message as well as provide services. Um, we've been looking into ways in which architecture will change post COVID-19 and, and you know, what, what will the world look like? Because one of the things that's admit that we're not quite seeing and experiencing yet is the real outcome of COVID. Like we're sitting at home and we're disconnected from the everyday life. So, you know, we yet are to really see the changes that will come. And it might be that we'll go back to work and realize that our favorite coffee place went down and the, you know, the favorite barista serving you coffee is no longer there. Or perhaps some people, you know, from the offices will not come back to work and you'll never really understand why, you know, maybe they changed their mind or perhaps they found a different work or maybe they were fired. And so there's, these changes are still to be really experienced. And uh, one of the things is that looking at statistics, specifically in the United States, uh, there is actually quite a lot of people that already lost their jobs in architecture and a lot of projects for architects were pulled out. So there is, you know, no continuation and, and it's all now statistically measured. And those statistics are a little bit shocking because numbers are already big. And so one is wondering what's going to happen next. And I think that seeing what's, you know, what's on people's minds and the, the, the subjects being talked about a lot of people are thinking about first of all definitely transforming digital and becoming less dependent on the economy on, on employers on big firms whatever because even the very big corporations have proven that some people were disposable very easy in the process and so that's saddening to see that no matter your financial status or even your skill sets you can be disposable disposable in a situation of, of a you know kind of um, economic turmoil but uh, we've been looking into specific how offices will change and you know considering that a lot of people might decide to start their own businesses there definitely is going to be a, quite a boom I mean that's hypothetical but it's interesting to think about it that there will be a boom for actually flexible social spaces and and places where you know for office buildings and uh, then we started thinking about you know what happened with for example the the crash in in 2008 and we were discussing you know what if um, you know what happened was a lot of real estate was unfinished and undone and a lot of projects kind of didn't quite complete so architecture in one way went to pause and created this kind of empty buildings that never got completed because the the companies either bankrupted or something but then you know there is a potential there'll be a bigger need for office buildings so how can those two things combine and we're just envisioning these ways in which like co-working spaces will take over the unfinished buildings and big cities and perhaps develop there um, and you know what would that really mean for architects and what would that mean for new business you know startups etc 
And you know, specifically when you, you're in New York, I live in Berlin. Well, not at the moment, but like, yeah, like full time I live there. And, you know, co-working is very popular in big cities. You know, it's cheaper and you get exposed to so many people that, uh, you know, that you can potentially outsource other projects from or get ideas. And and so the networking aspect of this is really strong. And I am for certain, like, convinced that, you know, the, the blueprint of how we will do business and how we, where we gather and how we gather will change. And it's interesting to speculate. And I think one of the actual factors of looking into red ocean and blue ocean is also looking into, you know, those hypothetical scenarios and seeing, you know, is there a potential for me to step in and perhaps offer something that would be completely unique to my competition, you know, and using that opportunity and being driven by this message, is there a problem I could solve with it, with this so that, you know, my, my message can narrow down and my business can also like like you were speaking before how important it is to have like a focused message and that's a strategic positioning really so it's kind of combines with this idea of like looking at opportunities and asking yourself can i solve a problem yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 i um you're asking all the right questions i what i'm wondering is while I, we probably won't be able to know uh, or be able to tell the future. I think what we will be able to do is to identify some of those big macro trends. Um, and you're right. I don't see um, us going away from uh, a shared working environment, but I think that the definition of that is going to evolve, right? So especially amidst uh, what's going on with COVID-19, uh, we're realizing that we don't physically have to be in a space all the time, right? At, with that said, uh, the, the pendulum goes both ways, right? Too much remote work, um, I think, is obviously we're going to feel the effects now, right, as we're all staying at home for much longer than we anticipated. Um, and, yeah, I think the nature of work, I think, is going to change. Um, the nature of physical work versus remote work is going to change. Um, what you uh, mentioned about dig, uh, digitizing of work and everything that that means. Um, I think, so, so, so all of these trends are, are very much... Uh, important to, to keep in mind. Um, and yeah, and I think that's the best we can do, you know, is to try to just be students of, um, you know, what what people are needing. Um, and you just try to consistently, um, you know, tr try to consistently provide value there. So uh, it's exciting, exciting times ahead. And I think for, for every company, there's, there's certainly room to create um, your own blue ocean. Um, and there's so many different ways. I'm, I'm actually curious to hear a little bit more about uh, what you have in mind, but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of how you're positioning yourself and, and you know, what stories you're telling that um, maybe you're not hearing from, from others. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been really insightful. And, and I think that a lot of people and a lot of companies right now, especially in the sector of design, need to uh, truly go back to the whiteboard and ask themselves those basic questions. And it, it really is very much down to uh, those simple strategies that you can implement today in order to, um, to first of all, help your business survive if it's threatened, but also to, to allow it to thrive through these times. Because 
you know, I, I have uh, shared today on my social media also an article, I don't know if you've seen, um, about how uh, MoMA's then basically been like letting all the educators and trainers um, off. And, uh, you know, they just have decided that, uh, you know, digital transformation is not for them or perhaps we're not thinking about it. But for me, it's very saddening because it's one of like the highest budgeted, um, you know, museums that can actually have the budgets to provide digital education and move their services virtual. And I mean, this week alone, I've done so many virtual events and things, you know, I've watched my favorite drag queens perform and I have, I've, I've been watching uh, some incredible architecture movies that have not been actually legally uh, quite uh, accessible before. So there's been quite a lot of libraries and companies and, you know, that have opened up their uh, resources to people today knowing that we're spending more time online and that we're looking for entertainment and we're looking for perhaps more knowledge, education, etc. And, you know, looking at big gallery like MoMA and seeing how they haven't adapted and instead they're actually going down under with the resources and the financial resources that they have. It's saddening. And, and, and I think it's really important to be able to understand the like really the importance of like thinking about what I'm doing who I'm serving how am I positioning myself you know so that in this time you can even refine your message more yeah yeah and to your credit you're ahead of that you're ahead of that so I think um, a lot of the conversations you're having um, I'm excited to to hear more um, of how you know who you're meeting and, and what um, you know various folks are, are, are doing um, yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, if, you know, obviously if there's any listeners that uh, uh, kind of resonate with the message, obviously they should, they should reach out to, first to you uh, <laughs> to hear what they're up to. Um, and yeah, if there's any like owners or operators uh, in this space, um, we obviously would love to talk to you. So feel free to reach out. Exactly. And it's great. Thank you so much for giving the listeners this opportunity because honestly, um, you know, I think it's important also to not only learn from other people, but to be able to talk and have that uh, element of accessibility. So it's great that you're you're available. And, and yeah, I encourage anybody who does want to ask questions to reach out. Awesome. awesome. So thank you so much, Jose, uh, for yet another amazing conversation. I wish you all the best and I hope we connect soon again. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. Architecture Talk Tank has its own frequency. We're not a regular podcast, but we are here for you. Always. If you have a suggestion for a guest or have a story that others in this community can benefit from, please contact me via social media or email me directly at me at saracolada.com To sign up for my newsletter, simply go to the website saracolada.com I am on Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn. You can find me by typing my name Sarah Colada. Come say hi. I'm always excited when you reach out. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.